Hey, are you listening to this via Google Podcast? Don't! As of 2024, Google will be discontinuing the Google Podcast service as they roll out YouTube music. What does that mean for the podcast you listen to now? Nobody knows! So find an alternative podcast catcher now and resubscribe to all of your favorite shows. And if you're saying to yourself, I, I don't know where to start, I-, I don't know where to go, why not check out Spotify and see if it's a good fit for you and your podcast listening. And hey, while we're talking about good fits, please head on over to OneRadCrowd.com and see if any of the three shirts being proposed are the right fit for you. It's a Kickstarter campaign to rerun three of the most popular designs from OneRadT. We've got Arcado, the design that started it all, featuring 24 different video game characters. Also, the return of 20XX, a Mega Man-inspired tea. And of course, the ever-so-popular winners don't drink drugs design that is just teeming with 90s nostalgia please check out oneradcrowd.com kick in $25 for one tea $45 for two or $60 for all three The future of gaming is portable, so let's talk about the games in our hands, the games in our pockets. Let's talk about the future today. It's Handy Pocket. Or, as it's also known as, make your own damn game. (laughs) I'm your host, Kyle Von Kubik, and I'm joined along with... Do you know someone who owns a gun? Did you hear that on the free feed the other day? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> and it was like a brand new joke to me. And I'm like, I'm the one who put it in here. It's still fun <laughs> to me. It tickled me. Anyway. Uh, yeah, this is episode number... 379. And it's in conjunction with the uh, release, maybe, of uh, Read Only Magazine issue 8, we think. Make. That's the theme. Make. There's all sorts of great articles uh, within this issue of Read Only Magazine, discussing the the theme of making in, in one way or another. Uh, of course, it all revolves around the uh, central theme, which is video games, because it's a video game magazine. And I implore you to check it out. Go to readonlymagazine.com. And within those pages, I briefly talk about WarioWare DIY. And uh, it shares the same title as this episode, which is Make Your Own Damn Game. I want to have a, a I want to talk about one specific game, but I also want to have a bigger discussion with John about creating using tools uh, that are uh, found within home video game consoles. Because on the PC, it's very common to find creative suites. It's not as common to find creative suites within the home console generations that John and I both experienced. However, surprisingly, during my research for this episode, I found that there were uh, quite a number of creative applications on the different home consoles from the late 80s all the way uh, to today. Uh, I want to specifically talk about the game Game Builders Garage, which came out in 2021, which is an application for the Nintendo Switch that allows their users or it, th- that allows players to create their own damn game and when i was playing it with my son i thought wow this is a a incredible tool a teaching tool uh an education tool that i think more children who are interested in programming should be using 
And it also reminded me of my own desires as a kid to want to create a game. And for the first time, I feel like I could maybe do it. And the only other time I kind of felt like that was with WarioWare DIY. But again, these are very small micro games. So why don't I back it up? I don't know how my little brother does it. I mean, how does he come up with this stuff? These WarioWare DIY micro games he put together are great. Fun, challenging, creative. I mean, he's in the other room right now making some more. For some reason, our mom won't let him play WarioWare DIY at home anymore. I'm not really sure why. You've got the inspiration, now make the games. Choose or design the graphics, music, and gameplay. Then play and trade your WarioWare-style micro-game creations with your friends. Plus, with WarioWare DIY Showcase, you can take your games to the big screen with your Wii console. WarioWare DIY, only from Nintendo, and only for these Nintendo systems. John, as a kid, I gotta imagine, at a certain point, you wanted to make your own damn game, right? I, to be honest with you, it was something that never really crossed my mind. I couldn't comprehend how a game would be made. I remember looking at the art being made for like some Street Fighter game or something on TV, and just thinking, "Yeah, no, thank you." <laughs> like, um, <laughs> I don't know. I just could never figure it out. I like computer coding and maths and stuff like that. Just doesn't come naturally to me at all. It's funny because you brought up uh, WarioWare DIY. And that's probably the only, like, specific builder game that I've went out and bought in the last, like, 38 years or however long I've been alive. And um, I could never actually finish any games on it. I just, oh. I didn't know how to do it. And, like, not, there was no way, I, I just couldn't hack it. I didn't know what I was out, what I was doing. And um, I started making a game and I slaved over it for an entire summer where it was, do you remember... <laughs> Do you remember the film, uh, or that film, the video where the guy, the girl is like crying in the camera and her dad goes, Hey, you bunch of pricks. I, you've been lying to my daughter and I called the cyber police. Um, do you remember that one? No. You bunch of lying, no good punks. And I know who it's coming from because I back traced it. And I know who's emailing and who's doing it. And you've been reported to the cyber police and the state police. Right. So you Why better not? write one more thing or screw with my computer again. You'll be arrested. You End of conversation from her father. <laughs> I don't remember that. Yeah, I made a game about that in, okay. in WarioWare. <laughs> and um, what was the call to action in that game? Oh, you just have to call the cyber police, I think. <laughs> and consequences would never be the same. And yeah. um, you didn't like just the the art aspect of it, where uh, where DIY, especially with the stylus. Couldn't really draw for shit back then. That was before uh, my, okay. that was before my uh, my time with the pencils. And um, gotcha. Yeah, so I just I don't know. I just never. I never clicked with it and like I've worked in web design companies and yeah. you know they're like okay learn how to code because you know it's going to be handy for you and I'd sit there and I'm like oh, I'm just so glad nobody here knows how to use Photoshop uh, <laughs> because <laughs> um, 
Never really, I think I I did take part in some game jams though. Actually, now that I think about it, okay. Um, I went to one, and a guy just pulled me aside and was like, "Hey, you 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 probably know how to make pixel art, right?" And I was like, "Not really, but I can I can give it a shot, I guess." Yeah. And I worked with him on his little game, and that was fun. And uh, and I think I took I came up with a concept for a game and another one. I, I, to be honest with you, I was just there while there was game jams on. There's a guy I knew called Darren who uh, mm-hmm. I think still runs game jams in Galway, and um, he was very—I don't know—he's just really gung ho about it. And I always kind of wanted to support his efforts, even if I didn't have any real skill to support with. Yeah, that uh, completely understandable. As far as like myself with the desire to create games, it's. It goes back to my earliest memories of playing video games. I remember drawing things on a piece of paper and then like cutting them out and taping them to the screen while I played like an Atari game. Um, So I see the desire there to sort of manipulate what I was seeing. I remember going to a summer camp uh, one year when I must have been like six, five, six years old. And there were some other kids there. It was a group of kids, all different ages. And one of the older kids showed us this trick where uh, he drew like a bubble letter E and the uh, partitions between the uh, letter E, the space, would be where we would draw like our own Mario stages with spikes and pitfalls and enemies and power-ups and things like that. And the, the goal, much like Donkey Kong, would be to like get to the top of that letter E, that letter E shape. So like we were designing games on paper because when I grew up in the late 80s or early 90s, there wasn't this push for STEM like there is now. Uh, You had to be a really good student to get close enough to a computer and have somebody around you to teach you something of value regarding programming. When I went to school, computer class, computer lab, was something that you did once a week. And it was more about educating the students to computer literacy, like turning it on, getting a program to boot, and then, you know, making funny faces on a screen with typing in different number sequences for different types of eyes and eyebrows and smiles. Very simple, rudimentary things where... I didn't learn how to program, but I felt more comfortable around a computer. And I knew that even from that funny face game that, okay, I'm changing things on the screen. So this device has something to do with making computer games. Like if I can change the face on the screen, maybe there's some other program or application that could help me to build a game. Now, with my own son, there's all these STEAM and STEM camps that you could send them to. There's after-school programs and things. But what I found with him is, while he has a desire to create games, he's getting more of that desire fulfilled at home than he is at these classes or these after-school activities that I'm signing him up for because the people teaching them aren't extremely well-versed in programming so they're getting it out of the, out of the can scratch pad and they're showing them a picture of elsa 
from Frozen or a picture of some other popular character, you know, a Paw Patrol character, if you will, and doing very simple logic puzzles to move the character on the screen. But they're not learning anything past that. And I guess maybe that's the stepping stone, right? I don't know how to program. I don't know how to use Unity or JavaScript or any of these other programming languages or applications to build a game because I was never a great student. You know, I struggled with math as a kid and I always felt like oh you can't do it because of math you'll never like as I got older when I was a little kid taping things to the screen anything was possible computers were magic video games were magic uh I just needed to figure out a way I've told you stories where I think uh you know in fifth grade I actually I do remember this because I was saying this to Kimberly my wife I convinced a bunch of kids to hand over their unwanted tiger electronic handhelds so I could crack them open and change the background picture behind the screen and repaint the games and then rename them. And I told this story on an old podcast we did together. And uh, I said that like nobody really wanted these things. Like a, a group of us thought it'd be cool to do, but nobody wanted them. And I think your response was what nobody wanted a, a copy of Rad Kyle, which yeah. we all <laughs> laughed about. And I said, it's funny that, you know, said it because now everything is under this one rad umbrella. And I'm like, did that get tucked in the back of my head from years ago when we did that show together? But yeah, I've wanted to do this for a very long time. And as I got older, I realized that like, all right, I'm not a great student. I'm not great at math. So this probably isn't for me, but the desire was still there. So I remember picking up uh, RPG Maker for the PlayStation. Mm. and really giving it a go and and it that's such a challenge in itself because you, all you get is the manual in that jewel case to tell you how to operate that game and there's just not enough sheets of paper within that manual to really dig down into like how to just get anything to really work in there but I did I was able to make a very um wrote type of JRPG, kind of like Dragon Quest, you know, the original, with some decent-looking 16-bit, 32-bit sprites that are out of the can and uh, move them around and get into battles and things like that. So it was satisfying to a point, but to make anything very large would take a lot of time. And the problem with a lot of these things, these applications for consoles that help you create things is the export process right so like for me to export my little rpg out of rpg maker for the playstation back in the year 2000 i'd have to save it across multiple memory cards and then give that to a friend who also had rpg maker to play this game you know, this was before there was internet architecture to save the things you created. You couldn't email a game to somebody or trade it across a proprietary server. You literally had to have like, you know, four memory cards for your RPG that somebody else could play. So you were making something for nobody, essentially. But that's what I kind of did with Mario Paint back in 1991. As I've expressed many times, I was Johnny Come Lately with home console so I got my uh, Super Nintendo when the price dropped on it and with it came eventually I don't know if it came when I got the console or a little bit afterwards perhaps for my birthday got Mario Paint and this was before PCs were really showing up in my house at least ones that would operate with a mouse so my first experience with a mouse was with Mario Paint because the computers at my computer lab at school were still I think Apple II's uh, they didn't have mice 
And the only other computer that I experienced prior to Mario Paint would be a Commodore 64 and a TI-88. So both, I don't know, I guess they're both 8-bit computers that didn't have mice. So my first experience with using uh, a mouse... They might have had mice living in the back of them. Yes! (laughs) Yeah, very possible. Uh, You know, both hand-me-down microcomputers that were consumer level. I think for many people in the early 90s, this uh, creative suite... Because that's really what it was. It wasn't just a, a paint tool. It wasn't like Microsoft Paint on your Super Nintendo. It was an animation tool. It was a painting tool. It was a music creator. Uh, and they had a fun little game in there, buried in there, Nat Attack. But Mario Paint might have been the start for many people to experience, one, a, a digital creative suite, and two, a computer mouse. It was for me. And I think for... 1991 it was pretty robust for a piece of software even when you're comparing it to the things on the pc so for like under 200 dollars back in 1992 you could get a super nintendo and mario paint whereas like to get anything comparable to what that was delivering to you on your television on the pc end probably would have cost anywhere between two to five thousand dollars to get an animation program a music music creation program a photoshop or a painting type tool like photoshop or corel draws it would cost thousands of dollars so nintendo was kind of ahead of the curve with making it accessible much in the way that i guess you know the microcomputers did it made computer computers more affordable for uh the at-home consumer instead of in the professional end where big companies could afford thousand two thousand three thousand dollar price tag for these pieces of hardware uh and these creative suites did you experience mario paint at all as a kid no um i didn't really know of its existence until the internet basically i'm sure i probably saw it on tv but to be honest with you like owning anything owning a mouse forget about it yeah you know, um, right. I definitely played with the Super Scope. That okay. was the most variation I got beyond the standard uh, pad. Um, I think my cousins had one of those Amstrad Mega PCs, which was okay. like a PC that you could play Mega Drive games on. Yeah. Um, it had a weird beige version of the Mega Drive pad that came with it to match the tower or whatever it is that sits under the monitor but yeah computers to me were for like my mother um bless her used to always say he'll be good with them (laughs) you know like (laughs) she just had faith that i would be good with computers down the line yeah uh but like the idea of owning one was forget about it like it was not going to happen oh yeah sure um in school in around 1995, whenever Windows 95 uh, broke out, <laughs> I guess 1995 or 94, yeah. maybe, um, we yeah. had computers that had mice. We could play like Granny's Garden and uh, all these yeah. educational games. And I probably told a story before about how um, I saw one of my teachers playing. There's like a Titanic point and click mystery game. Okay. Uh, it's like on board the Titanic, and I caught him playing it. 
and mm-hmm. he was like, "Oh, it wasn't." It? I was like, ooh, ooh, "Slow down, man. Just play it, and I'll say nothing." <laughs> I just want to see it. <laughs> you know? Hey, hey, hey! What are you doing? Nothing. It's porn. Go away. <laughs> yeah, he's like two lines of porn have been loaded in at the top of the screen. He's just waiting for the rest of it to come in on the dial-up. Um, <laughs> no, he just didn't want to be caught playing the game. He just yeah. <laughs> Yeah, th- there's something to be said about the uh, economic barrier to PCs at the time. Um, most kids around me didn't have PCs. They might have an an older computer, maybe. You know, the Commodore 64 all of a sudden that was showing up in uh, garage sales or in a uh, thrift shop or something in the you know early 90s you can maybe pick up an older computer like a ti-88 or something uh, but they were not up to the same standard as what was being rolled out in 91 92 93 because the technology was moving so fast and in turn because the technology was moving so fast a lot of school computer labs were woefully behind in what they could offer students and again the the person teaching the computer class was the same guy or or woman who, you know, five years earlier is teaching the typing class with typewriters. <laughs> I, I was I was taught typing on typewriters in high school, or I'm sorry, not in high school, in uh, junior high school. We were still going to typing class in a room with a bunch of typewriters. So it's well, like this is you know the computers hadn't become so ubiquitous yet. They were important. They were around. They were creating amazing things, but they weren't accessible for my generation until the, the late nineties. The type, the the keypad, the keyboard itself yeah. was kind of like a. I can type. I like I can type at a professional uh, level. We do like fifty words a minute or whatever, and um, you know I can touch type, but mm-hmm. I can only do that because I got. Like, I was around computers later on in life. Before right. that, like, looking at a keyboard, you're like, why are all these letters in this strange order? You know, what does the num key do? You know? like <laughs> Yes. They were, they were so, like, alien almost. It's kind of crazy that we still have a QWERTY keyboard, really. But there's no there's no better solution out there, I guess. Um, yeah. Like, you know, when you like, you can use these touch screens in your text to speech and or speech to text and all that. But it's still way better to just use a keyboard if you can type. It, it's interesting to find those relics of typewriters because typewriters have been around for hundreds of years that are pre QWERTY, and they, each company was trying to come up with their own sequence of letters. Yeah. So there are actual like typewriters that have like alphabetical keys where it's like A B C D. Can you imagine trying to type on that thing? I wasn't very good in my typing classes with the typewriter, but it's I should mention that if you were good enough where you did your exercises the fastest and they were correct, you would actually do this on paper and hand it into your teacher who would check it. Which is crazy because you weren't writing like words; yeah. you were just writing different sequences of letters. If you were good enough, then on uh, Friday you could go to the one computer that was in the typing lab and do a typing game. It wasn't Mario teaches typing or whatever, and nor was it Typing of the Dead, which would have been completely rad. But this is mid '90s. Or was it Mavis speaking? No, it was. 
you know, it wasn't Mavis Beacon, if I can remember correctly. There, it was a game. It was some sort of game, but you had to, you know, type to play it. So it would be like Mario teaches typing, where the little character goes across the screen, and if you do the typing sequences correctly, they would jump and hit the bad guys or whatever. But I, I don't know what that game was, because I was not good enough to ever play that game. I would just see the kid's back facing the computer, having a little bit more fun than the rest of us, you know, tapping away at our uh, keyboards. I couldn't get this tune out of my head till I heard these flowers, then a heartbeat, and the sound of mushrooms sprouting. It was raining cats and dogs in harmony. Then airplanes hit the high notes. Even the stars came out to play. Hey, I think I just wrote a song. Mario Paint. Draw and make music, only on the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. So yeah, so Mario Paint, monstrously influential, I think, for many children and many of the people who are doing pixel art today, I can see having their start with Mario Paint or even um, some of the d digital music composers today, I could see... Um, kids from my generation getting their start with Mario Paint because of how robust uh, that creative suite was. But as I've expressed with RPG Maker for the PlayStation, the export process would be the thing that kind of locked you into the console. Like you could not share your creations in Mario Paint easily. The only recommended way, the only way anyone really knew of was to either take a like picture of the television screen, if you drew something really cool in Mario Paint, you could take like a Polaroid of it, or uh, Nintendo recommended connecting your VCR to uh, your Super Nintendo to your VCR and then recording from that, you know, onto a VHS tape and then sharing the VHS tape with friends and family. I don't know anybody who did that. That just wasn't something that was easy to do. And again, it was prohibitively expensive to buy VHS tapes just so you could put, you know, nine frames of animation off of Mario Paint onto a VHS tape. I, that'd be like asking for batteries for your Game Gear. You're going to get hit with a belt. Forget it. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I think I don't remember VHS, blank VHS tapes being that expensive. Um, no, they weren't that, but they weren't cheap either. Oh, you can know, I tell you? Batteries weren't that expensive, but they weren't cheap either. I'll tell you a, a weird aside here. Okay. Yeah. Um, I recently inherited some wrestling DVDs from a friend of mine who left the country. Okay. Um, one of these was made by an independent wrestler because there was a marketplace back then where you go to the indie shows and the guys that have their own DVDs of their mm -hmm. best matches and they'd sell them to you. And they'd be DVDRs that they made at home. And this one I was watching um, was the, the best of Jody Fleisch and it was clearly a VHS rip. Um, okay. You know, he made this compilation on a VHS tape and then ripped that and then put it on a DVD. Mm -hmm. And the the video file was four hours long. And I got to the... Oh, my gosh. But, but I get to the, the last match and I went, okay, this is like two hours, two and a half hours or whatever. And I just thought, I wonder, is it going to be like VHS tapes back in the day when my friends would, you know, tape Kindergarten Cop or E.T. or something... And yeah. then, you know, the last 25 minutes, you put a buffer in and then you put some nudity on there. Oh, no. Is that what happened? Here's the thing, right? I'm watching this DVD 
and the last match ends and then it transitions and it's just all these w- naked women in a shower I was like what like I couldn't believe it but it was an, ep- it was an episode of a, a, a German dubbed episode of Sex in the City that he had taped oh my gosh and, there was a, and not only that it was followed by 90 minutes of late night German television from some vintage in the early 2000s <laughs> on the DVD <laughs> yeah, that he sold. The best part of it is though, right? The yeah. the cover has like a it's it's you know it's on printed office paper, and yeah. he actually put a fucking age rating on it. It's like exempt from age ver- certification. And you're like, yes, your bootleg DVD that you're selling <laughs> uh, of Michinoku Pro matches that you you know that you've stolen that you were in. Uh, is exempt from certification because I don't think you know what certification is. It was wonderful in a way to just like have this relic that I was able to watch. I'm just uh, picturing some like enterprising 10 year old back in 1992, 1993 being like, you know, I'm going to connect my VCR to my Super Nintendo and I'm going to make a video birthday message to grandma. And he grabs some VHS from his, his dad's closet, records over something, sends it to grandma. She sees like, you know, eight frames of animation. Then all of a sudden it's Red Shoe Diaries or something. Oh, yeah, that's that, that's what we were getting. Like, um... A friend of mine told me actually he had an enterprise going on where he would make his own like compilations of like nude scenes from movies and stuff. Mm. And he had like this one master tape full of them. And then he would like make copies of specific scenes for other kids onto VHS tapes for money. Your friend was a pervert. (laughs) Oh, yeah. An enterprising pervert. But a pervert nonetheless. He knew those people in his school would pay for a VHS tape with the sex scene from Under Siege on it, you know? (laughs) And, uh, I mean, the money's there. Are you going to take it? Are you man enough to take it? And uh, In in vain of that enterprising spirit, though, that was definitely a part of my desire to create things because I thought about, like... When I got Mario Paint, I'm like, can I make a game with this? And when I'm reading in the the manual, uh, or not the manual, I guess it was in the manual, it said to do the VHS tape. But I also got the strategy guide for Mario Paint, which was a great strategy guide. In fact, I had it, sold it, and then bought it again when I was playing uh, WarioWare DIY because there was such a similarity between the UI of the creation tools that were in WarioWare DIY uh, are reflected from Mario Paint that I was like, that strategy guide's probably pretty handy. And it was, because if you wanted to just reference some good pixel art, that book was filled with it. If you wanted to um, do music from some of the, the popular games on the Super Nintendo at the time, it was in that book. You could you could make, you know, the Street Fighter, uh, one of the Street Fighter stages within Mario Paint by using the strategy guide with its visual presentation as well as the song, I believe, one of the songs would play. Um, so th- that, w- that was cool. But I remembered in 92, 93, when I was playing Mario Paint as a kid, I was like, I wonder if I could make like a cartoon with this and sell that. Because that was the other piece of it. It was like, because you didn't have money as a kid, right? You wanted to figure out how to make money. And as a creative kid, it's like, well, how can I do this thing that I enjoy doing, which is creating, drawing, doing things like that? How can I make money 
by doing what I enjoy, which is something we all strive for, right? Like we want to do something we enjoy doing and also be able to live off of it. Um, so yeah, I was that kid. I wasn't selling pervy VHS tapes, but I was definitely the kid who was like cracking open Tiger Electronic handhelds and trying to resell those. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. unfortunately, I knew one guy, and he would have been able to sell his um, his VHS tapes of his animations, but. <laughs> Uh, that's getting cut out. <laughs> that's well. That's gonna be too much setup to tell retell that story. That got cut. Sorry, <laughs> listener. <laughs> uh, maybe someday we can tell that story. It's a very private story, though. <laughs> oh yeah, that's there's a reason why I told it in the truncated form that it is. I'd rather that story live in the heart and mind of John than it be uh, for public consumption. <laughs> so yeah, I so so. Throughout my history with video games, there have been a couple games and applications that I've used. And right up into uh, 2000s, I think it was 2009 is when WarioWare DIY came out. That was probably the most satisfying experience I had with trying to create games at all. Not just on the, a home console or handheld, right? A consumer level handheld, just in, at all. But the uh, satisfaction came with an asterisk, this is a micro game, right? They only last a few seconds. But that was digestible enough for me where it was like, hey, I, I spent a lot of time with Mario Paint as a kid and the creation tools within WarioWare DIY were so similar that I was like, okay, I can hack this. And I just did, I, I, I hacked it. And as you see within the pages of uh, Read Only Magazine, I made uh, four, four games that at least visually look good, right? And uh, <laughs> I don't know about play-wise against the other games that you experience in WarioWare, uh, the WarioWare series, but I think what you create within WarioWare DIY, if you spend enough time with it, is at the same level as the other experiences that you have uh, while playing a WarioWare title, which is really neat. I did a little bit of research in regard to like when is the earliest examples uh when are what is the earliest example of being able to create a game within a quote-unquote game because i wouldn't really classify mario paint as a game there's a game on it but it's more of a, like a creative suite but let's just say game so that it's the umbrella of consumer level home video game console application we'll still call it a game the first one that popped into my mind was excitebike in 1984 you're not creating a brand new game or a new experience but you get to create your own tracks right uh there were other games that were released on the nintendo that would let you do that too games like load runner and mock rider you could make your own tracks or make your own stages battle city wrecking crew same thing Milk and Nuts, one of your favorite NES games. Um, one of everybody's favorites. Yeah, you can create the, you can create your own first stage, so you can make it as easy or difficult as you want. That's kind of neat. But these are just like little tools that you can play around with, where you're just making a stage or a track. And because we never got the disc system that they had in Japan, once you turn the game off, you lost what you created, which kind of stunk. Um, a Japanese-only release, D-Zeman, is an application where you are building your own vertical shooter from scratch on the NES. 
Imagine mm. doing that without a mouse. <laughs> Just, yeah. But it's deep, and uh, it's very interesting, but if you start the game and just hit play, it's black screen and you're out of the can ship. Nothing else is happening. You have to create the background, the power-ups, the enemies. All the tools are there for you to dig through and, and figure out on your own, but I gotta imagine that you had to be real dedicated and really love vertical shooters to accomplish anything within that suite. But yeah, I was surprised to see how many different games on the original Nintendo, the NES, did allow you to do some sort of level editing. And some of the later games would let you do it too because now people are more familiar with the hardware. So like Fire and Ice, which came out in 1993, which is kind of like a load runner type game. It's kind of like a Sokoban. You'd love it. Uh, would allow you to make your own stages. <laughs> Can I just, uh, I'll say, like, there's a, um, for me, the closest I got to doing all this would have been creating wrestlers. Sure. Yeah, I did a lot of that too. Um, but there's two funny stories. One is I bought WCW NWO Revenge for the N64. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, it was secondhand. It was like in college I bought it. And um, I played, I turned it on and one kid had done the least amount of, of um, modding to a game ever, right? Whoever owned it before me. He just changed Scott Steiner's first name to Kyle. So <laughs> he was called Kyle Steiner in the in the game. For real? Uh, yeah. That's hilarious. You've never told me that story before. That's funny. And that's all he did. Uh, I guess he liked Big Papa Bump. And, sure. Holler um, if you hear me. <laughs> but, uh, what was it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I... I played around with uh, Fire Pro Wrestling Returns yeah, and all the Fire Pro games, the later ones, and um, I actually spent so long making Mike Quackenbush in it once, and uh, (laughs) in in the new one, Fire Pro Wrestling World, you can even make him do an entrance in the van he lives in now. Do it. (laughs) That's so... I understand that joke. I guess a, a good subset of our listeners will listen, will understand that joke. Uh, yeah, I did a lot of the the creator wrestlers, uh, the creator wrestler thing with. Uh, I think the first game that I was introduced to with having that as an option uh, was WrestleMania 2000. It wasn't even a game I owned. It was a game that my uh, my friend uh, from school at the time, whenever that game came out, I guess it was the year '99, right, uh, 2000. He had it for the Nintendo 64, and we got into it. We were make like, each... Uh, it was... Uh, my friend Greg owned it. It was me, and there was another friend, uh, Chris. And we each had, like, I guess our own page of our creations. And we'd come up with storylines and factions and things like that. It was... It, we invested a lot of time into it because it lets you play in that space. Um, I think the appeal for a lot of people with getting these sort of tools within a game or like a creative suite with Mario Paint is that it breaks off from the video game where you're not punished for your mistakes. So a lot of games, like if you're just playing a straight, like a shooter, right? You're playing mm-hmm. Parodius or you're playing Gyrus or you're playing Space Invaders. It, it, you're only allowed so many mistakes before it's game over. Or a platformer like, you know, Super Mario Brothers. You're only allowed so many mistakes before it's game over. Where it's like with Mario Paint, if you mess up, you hit the undo dog. 
If you mess up, you just erase what you did and you start over. But there's no punishment for those mistakes. And as a kid, I think that's very rewarding where it's like this sort of safe space to learn. And that would be carried through with the different creation options you'd find in games, even with like a creator wrestler. Like you, you came up with an idea and you were like, uh, that didn't really turn out the way I wanted to. You just start over. It wasn't like you spent any points. Or you, you had to insert more money into the machine or anything like that. It was take as much time or as little time as you want within this space, which is uh, very appealing. Yeah, it was cool like to be able to, you'd get like uh, the creator wrestler formulas from forums and stuff as well you can see what i do a lot of that sure you just follow them along and uh, i think like soul caliber games allowed you to do that as well yeah uh yes i forget which one that was i think it was the one that was spread across three consoles had a uh creative fighter in there yeah that was the and first the, one to do that i don't know it's fun like i i i remember probably one of the first times i was aware i was colorblind was when i made own heart in one of uh the wwf games and my friend is like, why is his hair green? <laughs> and I was like, it's not green. <laughs> I had no idea you were colorblind. Yeah, it's some colors. Not all, obviously. It's not really anything that causes any trouble. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You know. But um, an interesting story nonetheless. You get diagnosed by a video game, right? It's like, hey, that's interesting. Well, I mean, I didn't know what it was. Later on, I was like, oh, yeah, it's probably that. That's probably why I made green hair on heart. Now it's commonplace. I see green hair people all the time. Fucking liberals, am I right? <laughs> um, flashing forward to the 2000s, uh, John and I have been podcasting for a very long time, so I remember when Little Big Planet was new. And we, we were discussing it on the, sh- the shows that um, we were doing at the time where we were talking about games. And I remember saying when Little Big Planet rolled out in 2008, where is Little Big Mario? And I would say this often uh, back then. It didn't make sense to me. Where I didn't find Little Big Planet all that appealing, and I know people have made very amazing and, and creative things within that tool set of Little Big Planet, but I never really liked the aesthetic of it. I wasn't a fan of Sackboy. I didn't find it appealing. Because I'm a very, like, visual person. And I thought, what's more appealing to uh, a person who plays video games than one of the most iconic mascots of all time, Mario? Where is Little Big Mario? And Little Big Mario wouldn't come out until 2015 with Mario Maker. And boy, was I all in on Mario Maker. I didn't own a Wii U. Um, but my brother at the time bought his, and when my son was born, he's like, look, I'm not even playing this thing, so you can have my Wii U and Mario Maker. And there's many long nights where you're up in the middle of the night at weird hours, and it would be feeding my son, getting him back to bed, and playing Mario Maker for a little bit. I really enjoyed it. The only caveat to, you know, Mario Maker is you're just creating Mario games. It didn't matter to me, because it kind of, like, delivered on something that I had hoped for for all these years, which is like, it would be cool if I could create my own games, and it made it so uh, accessible, and everything was so very recognizable. So it wasn't similar in its UI to Mario Paint. I guess in some aspects it, uh, it was, but you didn't get to create your own custom stamps, or your own custom pixel art, but you could use pixel art from across uh, a few different Mario games, 
and create your own ghost house or create your own uh, lava level or create your own what would you call those courses where it's scrolling a scrolling a belt scrolling platformer you could create your own mario levels that you wanted to see as a kid and i thought that was really cool and it kind of just hit a lot of those notes for me like hey you're never going to be a game programmer you're never going to be a game designer but this is scratch that itch so i was all in i actually really am a fan of the 3ds version of mario maker because you get to use the stylus and because i really appreciate how the game delivered the tools to you so you had to play through some of the most challenging mario levels or 2d mario levels i've ever played to unlock different tools i know that might be a turnoff to some people but because i'm a fan of those older mario titles um i enjoyed the challenge the the game mechanic of that challenge to unlock the tools to use them within my own stages and then just using that stylus on the touchscreen made it very uh appealing to me where it was almost like the same as drawing onto a sheet of paper i'm creating with the stylus in lieu of a pencil and i'm dropping in the different assets into my own customized stage so much so that when i started playing mario maker again with my son on the switch it was difficult to go back to using the controller to manipulate the different menus in the screens but i was still able to do it and mario maker 2 they had so many different patches and, and DLC add-ons to that where it's like now all the Koopa kids are in there and the Link's in there now. And it's really cool. It's really robust. But it's still your Mario games. And not your... It's polygonal Mario, but not your 3D Mario. You're making the 2D, 2.5D Mario games. I love playing video games, but wouldn't it be awesome to make your own video game? Learn to make games from the minds at Nintendo with Game Builder Garage for Nintendo Switch. Game Builder Garage makes game creation fun and easy by using step-by-step -step interactive lessons that teach you how to make seven awesome games. Learn the basics of programming logic while having fun making games with Nodon. Discover how different combinations of Nodon work together to create specific movements and functions in-game. By pairing Nodon together, they'll bring your game to life. Soon, you'll be racing, rolling, blasting, and jumping. Unleash your creativity in free programming mode to make your own games using your new skills. Share them with your friends online. Learn to make your own video games. Gotta have Game Builder Garage. Available now. 2021 saw the release of Game Builder Garage, and I was interested when I was reading about it and seeing shots of it and seeing what the possibilities were with this software suite. Unlike Mario Maker, unlike Mario Paint, I would say that it's not user-friendly uh, at all. It tries to be, but it doesn't have your boy Mario in there, so it, it makes it kind of difficult to get a, a younger gamer into it. However, if there's a parent there reading every line of dialogue <laughs> to that younger player, I think it'll hook them because it is rewarding in that it has tutorials to teach you how to make some very basic games. Things like um, moving a marble around a maze to pick up, you know, apples for points 
or a sort of platformer where it kind of operates like a Mario where you're jumping on top of things. You're not going to find Goombas unless you make them yourself. There's also a tutorial to show you how to make a first-person type game, and that's neat. And I really think that this program is what schools should be using to teach children how to program because I think it's challenging but also digestible but also requires someone to help them through it. As an adult, I could sit down and just read all this little dialogue and learn and practice on my way, but for a child to read, even though they try to cute up these, what I'll call dip switches, again, I'm not a programming guy, but I'm just gonna call them dip switches because I'm an arcade guy and that's what I know. Uh, there's a bunch of different characters called nodons, and each nodon is a switch that does different things. It'll say, you know, a launch nodon. What does the launch no nodon do? It launches something, but what does it launch? You have to connect other nodons to it. So you have to connect an art nodon to the launch nodon and a timer nodon to the launch nodon so that it knows how often I should shoot whatever object I'm connected to. It's dense. It's dense. And a lot of times when I was using this program, I felt stupid. I'm like, I don't understand why I can't get these very simple rudimentary things to happen on the screen. But as Nikobun uh, wisely pointed out on our Discord, hey, bro, that's game design, man. That's game development. You're good. That's what it is. And I was like, yeah, that's fair. And it's how much it, what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. It makes me wonder um, if there's a right wing conspiracy out there about the game builder garage if it goes into schools and they'll be like they're gonna be teaching these children how to make pc fx 98 hentai games <laughs> uh yes sadly anything and, can be and, politicized now with kids i, I just, you might go ahead you might think to yourself wow john they're not that dumb they are <laughs> they're oh yes like, yes they they are <laughs> um i just i think children with instruction would get more out of this program and again i will keep saying i'm not a programming guy so maybe there there's somebody who knows a lot more about programming than i do is like nah that this game is crap it's not teaching kids anything of value for me knowing nothing about programming i feel like i am learning programming 101 where it's like okay you're learning how to make something within this piece of software and it's not going to be one-to-one -one relatable as to, I'm going to release my own game on Steam now. But it might make me feel more comfortable to play around in Unity, right? And if I do that, then I could maybe realize that dream of releasing a game. And I don't know if I'll ever do that. But I think it's making me feel more comfortable with the idea of programming because it makes it uh, visual where I'm tethering these building blocks to one another and I can keep flipping between the programming screen and the game screen to see, did, did it work? I could test it out immediately. And if it didn't, going back to uh, what I said earlier about Mario Paint or just the ability to create something within a game, I'm not punished for the mistake. The only punishment is I have to go back and fix something. And that's my choice, whether I want to do that or not. Um, I think the tutorials are very good. I would recommend that if this sounds interesting to you and you want to try it on your own, um, practice what you learn, which sounds kind of obvious. But when you're 
excited about creating something and you're using this program to create games and you've always wanted to create games, you'll fly through the tutorials. And the tutorials take anywhere from 20 minutes to upwards of an hour and a half, depending on the complexity. And obviously they get harder as you go. And they're building off of what you learned previously. The problem is if you just burn through those tutorials to get to the end of them, and you're like, wow, I look at all these cool things I made. You're going to forget what you learned in the second and third lesson. So when you go to create your own customized game that's not within the tutorial, you're going to forget a lot of stuff. So what we would do was we would go through a tutorial, we would learn the lesson, and then we would play with that lesson in a customizable space for like a day or two. So we were reinforcing what we had learned from the tutorial and also getting to flex that creative muscle where like we learned how to roll a marble around a maze and collect an apple for points right well let's try to build that from scratch like we just did with the tutorial but now see what we remembered and let's change up the texture on the walls because we figured out like oh with the art note on we can make textures and you, you just like Mario Paint, you're just coloring in pixels and you can create different things for different assets that you want to place down. That really helped us get better at the program. We're not great at it still. We're still learning it. Uh, we had to bring it back to the library. So hopefully next time we take it back out, we, uh, we've retained something. But I think that's the best way to use this program. I think it's more rewarding and, and probably makes a child feel like they're working towards becoming a game designer or a game programmer more than simply doing a logic puzzle of moving a Paw Patrol character, you know, north, west, south, east on a blank canvas. Well, look, if you do make a game, right, if you do go into Unity and you learn how to use it and, you know, you break out Unreal Engine 6 or whatever, uh, promise me you'll call it Radcoil. <laughs> I promise. Well, that does it for this episode. I'd like to thank my co-hosts for joining me, as well as the members of One Rad Club, without whom these shows just wouldn't happen. If you'd like to show your support for these shows, check out OneRadClub.com. For just a dollar a month, you can get early access to all the great shows on the One Rad Podcast Network. For a little bit more than a dollar a month, you can unlock all sorts of other exclusive content and physical rewards. Again, be sure to check out OneRadClub.com. Thank you so much for your support. We'll be right back real soon.